everyone and a very warm welcome to morning worship at Hillhead. As always, an extra special welcome to our family and friends joining us from across the country and around the world. And this morning, that includes our friend, the Reverend Dr. Ruth Goldborn from uh, Grove Lane Baptist Church in Chidohume, who is leading our worship this morning and has been a, a good friend of this church for many years. During the service, as well as Ruth's voice, we'll also hear the voices of Leslie, Alistair and Ken from Glasgow and Tamara from Germany. We'll be singing along with recordings of our hymns as usual, and we'll hear both Paul and Sheila on keyboard and Yang Yang on violin. In fact, we've heard Yang Yang already. And in just a minute or two, Esther and David and their family will light our candle and we're all invited to light a candle of our own at the same time. Then at 7pm this evening, we gather again on Zoom for our joint evening service when Robin Green will lead our reflections. Then just a wee reminder that once again this year, we're invited to make a donation to the Christian Aid Christmas Appeal instead of sending cards to our HBC friends. Now, Katrina set up a Just Giving page, as we did for our Operation Agri-Harvest Appeal. So um, you can go there and find the link there, make your donation, and you can keep your donation private, but please make your name public, because I'm going to gather up all those names and include them in the December key, wishing uh, Christmas greetings to all the rest of the folk at Hillhead. Just some items of family news. Um, we were very sorry to hear that Jenny's friend, Laura, died of COVID-19 this week. And tragically, Laura's father also died of COVID uh, recently. Jenny asks for our prayers for Laura's family and especially for her partner, Chris, at this incredibly difficult time. And we ask too for your continuing prayers for George and Holly. And then uh, some congratulations to offer. Um, David Ferguson, who uh, was born and brought up in Hillhead, uh, that's Carissy's son, for those of you who have joined us more recently, um, has been Professor of Divinity at Edinburgh University for a long time now, uh, but he's just been appointed Professor of um, Divinity at Cambridge University. So David and Margot will be moving uh, south to Cambridge over the next few weeks, and he will officially take up that post, which apparently is the oldest professorship in Cambridge. It's something like 1546 it was created. Uh, so um, 
Uh, he's going down there to become part of, of history by being professor there. It'll be a loss for Caris though, because David is a good son and he's visited Caris, I think, just about every Sunday afternoon since they moved to Edinburgh. Uh, so do remember uh, that it will be a loss for Caris too. And then some really lovely news. Today is Esther's sixth birthday. So will we give Esther a wee congratulations? Happy birthday, Esther. And we hope you have a lovely day with David and the family. Next Sunday, uh, Katrina is on leave. So morning worship will be led by our friend, Dr. Graham Meeklejohn, lecturer at the Scottish Baptist College. And at 7 p.m., our joint evening service will be led by Brian. But time now to light our candle. So it's over to the birthday girl, Esther, and her family to light our candle. As we gather for worship, let us join together to become the body of Christ. Christ is the light that lights our way. May we glimpse Christ lights this day. So come now, come with your questions, come with your awe, for the God who broods over the chaos meets us in this moment. Come with your energy, come with your weariness, for the God who breathes new life into the dust meets us in this moment. Come with your sadness, come with your joy, for the God who dared to become human meets us in this moment.
Let us pray. Loving God, whose love can heal the broken places of life, love us today. God of peace, whose spirit of peace can quiet our spirits of confusion and despair, reassure us today. Forgiving God, whose call to repentance promises grace upon grace, place your mercy in our souls today. You who heal the sick and liberate the imprisoned, who bring justice in the midst of oppression and strength in the midst of weakness, pour out your spirit upon us today. Open our hearts to new faithfulness, redirect our waywardness, hold us gently in your goodness. We confess our need to you and we turn to you with hearts filled with hope, remembering the promises you have made to us. May your name be glorified in us and through us as we learn to live in love. We ask it through Christ Jesus, your only begotten Son, he who is our Lord and our Saviour, our brother and our friend. Amen. Father in heaven, 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 hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on the earth as in heaven. Give us our bread for this incoming day. Forgive us the wrongs we have wrought, as we have forgiven the wrongs we have dreed. And say us not early, but so fastly the healing. I for the crown is thy name, and the mixed and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our first reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love.
thank you for the opportunity to be with you this morning through the magic of Zoom. I love the fact that I can visit without leaving home. Makes life so much more straightforward. I bring you greetings from the congregation at Grove Lane. We too are discovering the delights of Zoom and we've got reasonably good at it, though you are much slicker than we are. But it's lovely to be with you and, um, and you know that Katrina is is preaching with on our Zoom today, preaching to our congregation. But it is strange times. And one of the things that we have discovered that we need to live and to thrive in these strange times is the companionship of people who get it. Those who know what we're feeling and who can keep us company somehow in all of this weirdness. So this morning, I want to introduce you, or in some cases, I suspect, reintroduce you to three companions for strange times, people who live through their own tough times and whose stories merge with ours as a reminder of what it means to be the people of God. Firstly, I want to introduce you to a man called Hans Denk. He lived at the end of the 15th and into the first quarter of the 16th century. He died of the plague. He had already lived through an outbreak of plague and he lived through the beginnings of the Reformation and through a war, through the peasants uprising in 1525. He lived through difficult and violent times. And during his lifetime, all kinds of certainties that the people and the whole societies depended on were falling apart. The church, which had been the social glue through, of society through Europe, was disintegrating. There were political and social and economic changes that threatened to turn the world upside down. There was an informational and technological revolution that we kind of see mirrored in our internet revolution. We get this web and Zoom, they got printing, which suddenly opened up all sorts of possibilities of communication and passing on information and ideas. And just like we struggle with what is news and what is fake news, they were having the same debates about what do you trust? How do you know what is true when there's so much out there? Denk was headmaster at a school in Nuremberg and he was interested in reform. And he met up with one of the leaders who was taking the ideas of the Reformation, the, the challenges to previously accepted theology and structures, taking it to a much further degree even than Luther, a man called Thomas Münzer. And Denk became convinced by his theology and his vision of a radically transformed society. As such, he lost his job and he was expelled from Nuremberg. And he fell in with a group called the Anabaptists, a group of people who argued that the church should not be part of the state or controlled by the dukes or the princes or the town councils, but should be congregations of convinced believers. And here Denk found a theological home. He never settled down physically again. He wandered around, often fleeing from persecution but he was at home theologically, spiritually, amongst the Anabaptists. And one of the things that was a significant feature of the Reformation was the possibility of reading the Bible in one's own language. And Denk and a friend got involved in translating the prophets from Hebrew into German, and the text became one of the resources that Luther used in producing the great German Bible. One of the results of these accessible Bibles was that people argued they disagreed about what the text meant and they took to shutting each other out 
because of different understandings of the texts. If they couldn't agree, they couldn't be together. And Denk became convinced that what mattered was not head knowledge, not getting all the doctrines absolutely correct and without deviation. He argued, in fact, that the Bible was made up of different books, giving different approaches to one truth. And that truth was known not through intellectual capacity and agreement, but faith. And by faith, he meant something very particular. He summed it up in this phrase, no one truly knows Christ unless he follows him daily in life. That is, faith is not the assent to doctrines laid out in propositions, but it's following Jesus as best we can and getting to know him and so follow him better and so know him better. In the middle of the losses of everything that made life solid, social, theological structures, health, peace in the community, and faced with all kinds of personal challenges, losing his job, losing his home, being threatened by the people who had been his friends, the basis that he found for keeping going was an intention to live by the call he heard in Jesus' teaching and the expectation that in doing that, he would encounter Jesus' presence. Faith abides. Not simply the head knowledge of having learned the stories or even of understanding all the complexities of the doctrinal debate and which is the right side. Faith of following in daily life and so knowing. When our context is confusion and uncertainty and the demands on us are high, the temptation is to seek solid certainty. We see it when people, when we demand that those in charge give us simple, clear advice so that we know exactly what to do and what not to do. And of course, incidentally, we do. Wash our hands, keep our distance, avoid crowds, wear a mask. But we see it in so many other places. We see it in faith groups at the moment. Get it right. Believe exactly according to the formulae. Agree with whoever the me is who is speaking. That's what it is to have faith. Dink lived in that context, and we do too. But the faith that abides, the faith that gives life, is not that kind of rigid certainty according to the Anabaptists. Denk argues that the faith that gives life, that sustains and supports, that resources our lives as disciples cannot be summed up in a series of propositions, but is rooted in the knowing of Jesus that comes from daring to take Jesus at his word and live the kind of life he calls people to, a life that actually trusts that loving enemies is possible, that resources are given to be shared, that as we are forgiven, so we are enabled to forgive, and that we can trust, daring to live that life, and so discovering whether or not it is true. Thank you.
I have a piece of cross stitch beside my desk that I made during a very challenging time. And it's basically an expression of hope, drawing on the words of our next companion. It's a quotation from Julian of Norwich. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. It's probably the best known of her sayings, and I think one of the most difficult to get hold of. I've quoted it at various points until a friend said to me, I hate that saying. It's so trite and meaningless. It sounds just like the inside of a soppy card. Now, if there's one thing that Julian is not, it is soppy. And the problem with taking that quote just as a saying on its own is that it ignores both her context and the theology that surrounds the statement. As a phrase on its own, it has a very comforting sound that they're there, everything's going to be all right which actually bears very little relationship to the world as we too often experience it. Everything is not all right. Or, as it happens to the statement that Julian is making, for her world was not all right. Julian of Norwich was an anchorite. She lived from about 1343 till about 1416. She was five when the Black Death hit England. She lived through the next outbreak in 1361 and one in 1369 and probably one more before she died. During those outbreaks, somewhere between 30 and 40% of the population died. She also lived through the Peasants' Revolt in 1381, which was a violent uprising that was violently suppressed, which did eventually lead to the end of serfdom and a, a huge change in the social structures in England. When she was about 30, she was so ill, it was assumed she was dying. She didn't actually die. But during her illness, she had a series of what she later called showings, visions of the presence of Jesus. She wrote about them quite soon after they happened in what's now called the short text. And then later, after many years of reflection, she wrote about them again, not just recording, but explaining and exploring them in what we know as the long text. Actually, the first book to be published, as far as we know, written in English by a woman. And the phrase by which she's so well known comes from those writings and from that context. And it's anything but a soppy, cheer up, it's all going to be okay. Rather, it's an expression of a hope rooted in her faith experience and setting her in opposition to the circumstances and the trajectory of her context. There's nothing in the world around her that gives her this assurance. And it's not that she closed her eyes to the world around her as an anchorite. She was one of the wise women of the town. The records show that people came to her with their anxieties and their fears, asking her for advice, seeking encouragement and insight. And her writings make it clear she did not find the world easy or happy. There's a great deal about her awareness of sin her own and the wider sin of the world that caused sin, pain and distress. And indeed, that's the context in which she writes this phrase. The phrase comes as part of a discussion she's having about sin. A discussion, in fact, that she's having with God about sin. She is arguing with God about sin in it. Not just people doing wrong things, but the whole brokenness and suffering of the world. And this is what she writes. And for the tender love that our good Lord hath to all that shall be saved, he comforteth readily and sweetly, signifying thus. It is true that sin is the cause of all this pain. 
but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And these words were said full tenderly, showing no manner of blame to me nor to any. And she also writes, he said not, thou shalt not be tempested, thou shalt not be travailed, thou shalt not be diseased. He said, thou shalt not be overcome. Her argument is not that everything's going to turn out easily and comfortably, that that, but rather that because God holds all that is, all will be resolved and redeemed. This isn't hope based on quick fixes or an easy answer. It's not hope based on bigger armies or more firepower. It's not hope based on anything that humans can do. It's hope based on the God whom Julian knew through the crucified Jesus, raised and with her. Hope based on who God is and therefore on what God has done and will do. So we have a companion that teaches us about faith, faith that is knowing Christ through following him. We have a companion who teaches us about hope, hope based on who God is and what God has done and therefore what God will do. Our third companion is much nearer us in time. She was born in 1873 and died in 1897, aged 24. And we know her as Therese of Lisieux. Some way she didn't stand a chance. She was born into a very pious family. Her mother wanted to be a nun. Her father wanted to be a monk. Three of her older sisters were nuns. So that when she expressed a desire to be a nun, there was no surprise, though there was quite a lot of resistance. Too many from one family in one small convent was felt to be quite a bad thing. But as a child, she had longed to be a great hero of the faith. She longed, in fact, to be a priest but she wanted to do great things for God. She kept a record of the self-sacrifices that she offered and prayed that they would gain her a great reward in heaven. She was also very aware of her failings and was often in great distress over her sense of guilt. She did become a nun. She took her final vows at the age of 19. And as one of the young members of the convent, she was the one who did much of the nursing and the other duties when a, a flu epidemic hit the community. She lived through the kind of epidemics and pandemics that we know. And it was during this time of epidemic that her vision of her life changed. 
She noticed that as she was involved in the acts of service, caring for the sick, nursing the dying, doing the administration connected with the funerals, so her anxiety about getting it right, and in fact, about her faith itself, so these were diminished. And she began to recognise that faith, a life lived in fantasy, in wishing even for apparently good things, to be a hero for God, was not nearly so alive as a life lived here and now, doing what was in front of her with all the love that she could. This was what she called her little way, doing little tasks with great love, doing what needed to be done, and loving the people there in front of her, whoever they were. And that didn't make her life easy. And she writes about the difficulty of loving the people that really irritated her. She developed TB and it wasn't effectively treated. Indeed, she was examined by a doctor when she was fully robed and veiled and standing on the other side of the grill that separated the nuns from the rest of the community. Not surprisingly, very little in the way of treatment made any difference for her. But she tried to keep her illness hidden and to keep on doing her little tasks. Eventually, it was clear she was dying. And it was also clear to her, and she recorded it in the writing about her life that the abbess asked her to do. It was clear to her she had lost all awareness of God's presence and promise. She who had been so devoted to God, so sure of her salvation that as a child she spoke of being homesick for heaven, now only knew in her experience an emptiness and a darkness. She remained convinced of the truth of her faith, even when she couldn't feel it. And she understood this darkness to be part of her commitment to love. She came to believe that this experience of a lack of feeling enabled her to pray for those who had no faith with real love because she knew exactly how they felt. As it turned out, her sisters, both her natural sisters and her conventional sisters, couldn't cope with the radical nature of her commitment to love without limit and without response. Her faithful writing about her experience and her experience of the lack of experience was heavily edited after her death so that it appeared to be a much more conventional expression of a devout life. And it's only relatively recently that a more accurate version reflecting this sense of darkness, sense of nothingness has appeared. Throughout those last years of her life, she remained utterly committed to loving for God's sake, while at the same time experiencing a depth of emptiness that seemed to deny her whole faith. Her commitment to loving in the here and now, without fantasy, without illusion, and without ambition for herself, sustained her when her health failed and her experience of faith was dark. There are many quotes from her writings that people have drawn inspiration and strength from. So here are just two. Remember that nothing is small in the eyes of God and do all that you do with love. And without love, deeds, even the most brilliant, count as nothing. So as we live through these weird times, these three remain. Faith hope and love. And through the years, the people of God have explored and expressed them and discovered in them resources to live, 
to thrive, to be the people of God. Our second reading comes from, from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us bring our prayers for others and for ourselves. Let us pray. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we might perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name. Dear Father, we come before you this morning, knowing that you are aware of our earnest desires and our heartfelt pleadings. We come also knowing that from you no secrets can be concealed, for you know us altogether in all our human frailty and insecurity. Thus we would come before you seeking forgiveness for our failures, pardon for when we have forgotten your will for us, strength for our weakness, and courage to live life in the light of the gospel promise that you will never forsake us or forget us. We come from another week of significant events 
on the world stage. Turbulent political change at home and abroad, hopeful seeds in the prospect of a vaccine against COVID, yet still dark shadows over the economy of the nation and in the lives of individuals facing redundancy and the ever-increasing awareness of the inexorable climate change affecting our whole planet. And closer to hand, we know of issues and concerns affecting the lives of our own kith and kin, worries over health, debt, responsibilities for children and older relatives as we all try to live through these difficult days of limited contact during lockdown. And so we bring before you now those other areas of concern for which we are asked to pray today. Firstly, we pray for a number of Baptist fellowships in Scotland. We remember Chodosky Church, Shettleson Church and South Leith Church. We also offer prayer for the Board of Ministry of the Baptist Union in its important work in recruitment and selection of our pastors. We ask for your blessing on these Baptist endeavours in our homeland. Casting the net wider to the world scene, we pray for the work of the BMS worldwide, and in, particularly, in, and in particular, a variety of projects in Uganda, including agriculture, child protection, speech therapy, and water engineering. The message of the gospel in action is embedded in a wide range of projects by those whose mission is supported by ourselves in God's name. Finally, we'd remember those in our own church family. And this week we hold up to you, Neil and Faye, Graham and Margaret, Holly and George, Sheila, John, Heather, Liz and Douglas, Anne and Brian. Thus today, let each one of us remember that we are surrounded by a whole cloud of witnesses and let us resolve to cast aside anything in our life that would be a hindrance to our faith and help us to run with patience the race marked out for us. Above all, let us all persevere in faith and hope and love, for you first loved each one of us as if we were the only one to love. Amen.
So go now into whatever today, tomorrow and the future holds. And as you go, know this, that in grace you have been created. In mercy, you have been sustained until this moment. In love, you will be held forever within the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.